The Battle of the Nile, fought on the 1st of August 1798, saw the Royal Navy under Horatio Nelson achieve a stunning victory over the French. Two fleets of almost identical size, including 26 mighty ships of the line, over 2,000 cannon, fighting a nighttime close-range battle off the coast of Egypt. Nelson with blood pouring from his head, one of his captains killed by a musket ball, and the French admiral killed, the French flagship blown to smithereens. The end result was the complete destruction of the French fleet, for the loss of not a single Royal Navy warship. It was a battle that cost the lives of over 5,000 men, and yet is often seen simply as a footnote on the way to Trafalgar. It's now time to shine a light on this epic naval battle between two old adversaries. This is the story of the Battle of the Nile. Following their revolution in 1789, France had fought a series of wars with the other European powers, not least Great Britain. These revolutionary wars threw up a young general who was to leave a lasting legacy on France and Europe, Napoleon Bonaparte. In the late 1790s, he had come to prominence having won a series of campaigns in northern Italy. Still in his 20s, Bonaparte now turned his eyes east. He planned to conquer the Ottoman province of Egypt and use it as a base to extend French influence in the Near East. More importantly, he could use Egypt to threaten British interests in India, not least by allying and supporting Tupu Sultan, the vehemently anti-British Sultan of Mysore. He gathered an army of nearly 35,000 troops at the southern French port of Toulon, ready to invade Egypt. Whilst British spies were able to inform London of the gathering army and corresponding invasion fleet in Toulon, Napoleon's invasion objective was a closely guarded secret. Somewhere in the Mediterranean was the best the British could guess. So in May 1798, Admiral of the Fleet John Jervis, Lord St Vincent, sent his deputy, Rear Admiral Sir Horatio Nelson, into the Mediterranean to find out exactly what Napoleon was up to. Nelson is probably Britain's greatest ever naval commander, certainly her most famous, and I'll be telling his story in a special episode in a few weeks' time. Nelson departed Gibraltar on the 9th of May on board his flagship, HMS Vanguard. Built in 1787 at Deptford on the River Thames, Vanguard was a 74-gun ship of the line. She was accompanied by two more 74-gunners, HMS Orion and HMS Alexander, along with four frigates and a sloop. However, just a week after entering the Mediterranean, Nelson's fleet was hit by a storm. His own flagship, HMS Vanguard, was dismasted and his frigates were blown west. Losing touch with Nelson, they sailed back to Gibraltar. Meanwhile, the stricken Vanguard had to be towed by HMS Alexander towards a port in Sardinia for repairs. Incredibly, the repairs took a lightning four days, and Nelson put to sea again. In one of those twists that history often throws up, just one day before the storm, Napoleon had left Toulon with his massive fleet and army. News of the departure was signalled to Admiral St Vincent, and he immediately sent 10 more 74-gun ships of the line to reinforce Nelson. Rendezvousing with Nelson, they presented an equal match for the French convoy. The problem for Nelson was, where exactly was Napoleon Bonaparte heading? The British got their answer on the 9th of June, when the French arrived off the island of Malta. Napoleon demanded that the rulers of the island, the Knights of St John, give him access to the harbour at Valletta. The Knights of St John of Jerusalem had been formed back in the 12th century during the Crusades. They had, as their name implies, been based in the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem until it was captured by the forces of Saladin. 
Since 1530, they had ruled Malta and the neighbouring island of Gozo. With traditions dating back over 600 years to the Crusades, the feudal, highly religious and highly conservative knights were no friend of the Enlightenment, as exemplified by the new and bloody French Republic. Moreover, after his conquest of northern Italy, the knights didn't trust Napoleon to simply land and reprovision his fleet. Once his 35,000 troops came ashore, who knows what would happen? But the knights feared it wouldn't be good, or at least not for them. And so they refused. And Napoleon did what the knights had feared. He landed his troops and in three days he'd forced the knights to surrender. Their 270-year reign over Malta was over. Leaving a garrison of 4,000 troops on the island, Napoleon departed eastwards on the 19th of June. Seizing control of the island from the Knights of St. John, who'd ruled it for about 270 years, he set sail for Egypt on the 19th of June. Nelson now set off in pursuit, still unsure of the final destination. However, liaising with his captains, he took an educated and correct guess at Egypt. Nelson sailed the most direct course for the Egyptian coastal city of Alexandria, the obvious landing place as it was the only port large enough to offload 30,000 French soldiers. His fleet arrived off the port on the 28th of June and... nothing. The harbour was completely empty. Bemused local Ottoman officials informed Nelson there'd been no landing. Perplexed, he headed north towards modern-day Turkey. Where was Bonaparte? The answer was that Nelson, in his haste to get to Egypt, had actually overtaken Napoleon's lumbering convoy. Indeed, it subsequently transpired that on the night of the 22nd of June, the two fleets had just been miles apart, passing like, well, ships in the night. In one of those many sliding door moments in history, the French invasion force arrived off Alexandria the day after Nelson had departed. Napoleon proceeded to disembark his massive army, and then just three weeks later, on the 21st of July, he defeated the Ottoman Mamluk-led army at the Battle of the Pyramids. Meanwhile, having cruised around the eastern Mediterranean, Nelson arrived back in Sicily, only to be given the bad news about the French invasion of Egypt. Ever a man of action, Rear Admiral Sir Horatio Nelson now turned his fleet around and headed east. Along with his 13 74 gun ships of the line, he was accompanied by two smaller vessels, the 50-gun HMS Leander and the 18-gun brig HMS Mutine. The latter had recently been captured from the French and was now the first command of a certain Lieutenant Thomas Hardy. 29 years of age, Hardy had joined the Royal Navy as a midshipman when he was just 12. He would go on to captain Nelson's flagship, HMS Victory, at the Battle of Trafalgar. Nelson's fleet arrived at Alexandria on the 1st of August. This time, they found it crammed with French transport ships. But no French warships. Where were they? Was Nelson sailing into a trap? The answer was no. What with the number of transport ships and the narrowness of the harbour, the French Admiral, 45-year-old Francois-Paul Bouret, had moved his fleet about 20 miles east along the coast to Aboukir Bay. Admiral Bouret believed that the bay, with its shallow shoals, provided a strong defensive position for his 17-ship fleet. He anchored his ships in a long line, with his strongest ships at the far end, centred on his flagship, Lorient. The 120-gun Lorient was captained by Commodore Luc-Julien-Joseph Casabianca. Like Bonaparte, Casabianca was a Corsican, and he was accompanied by his 10-year-old son, Giocanti. And before you think that naval ships were no place for a 10-year-old, remember that on the Royal Navy's 74-gun ships of the line, 
There would usually be around 15 midshipmen, many of whom joined at the age of 12, like Lieutenant Thomas Hardy, who I mentioned just now. Different times. The French Admiral had ordered the first ship in his line, the Guerrier or Warrior, to anchor as close to the shoals as possible to prevent any British ships sneaking around onto the landward side of his fleet. He also ordered his ships to run cables from their stern to the bow of the ship behind them to block any attempts by the Royal Navy to cut through his line. It wasn't just to prevent Nelson's ships passing through onto his landward side. Remember that in those days, ships' guns did not rotate. The cannon all faced out of the side of the ship, hence delivering a broadside. This left the bow and the stern as vulnerable points on a ship. With almost no defence, an enemy could pound away to their heart's content, causing untold damage. To complete his defences, the French Admiral positioned army artillery on Abukar Island to provide additional land-based fire against any attacker. It seemed a strong position. Indeed, Bruyere was so confident that Nelson and his fleet could only fight him from the seaward side of his line that he ordered a large portion of his crews ashore to replenish his fleet's water and food supplies, whilst others set about repairing, cleaning and painting their ships. But overconfidence can be a dangerous thing, as the Admiral was about to find out. Later that day, at 6pm on the 1st of August 1798, HMS Alexander and HMS Swiftshore spotted the French fleet at anchor. Receiving their signals, Nelson ordered his fleet to close with speed. The arrival of the British fleet caught the French by surprise. Despite his strong position, the French Admiral contemplated putting to sea to fight in open water. After all, the two fleets were almost equally matched. 17 French versus 15 Royal Navy, 13 ships of the line each. 1,196 French guns versus 1,012 for Nelson. With some of his crew still ashore, he was persuaded to stay where he was, and it seemed a smart decision, as at that moment, with the daylight fading fast, Nelson had slowed up. It seemed there would be no battle today. But Admiral Bruyere was wrong. Nelson slowing up was merely to allow his whole fleet to come together. During his circular tour of the Eastern Mediterranean, Nelson had regularly brought his captains together to plan how they would act against the French fleet in various scenarios. This scenario planning was a hallmark of Nelson's leadership style, for it enabled his captains to move straight into action without waiting for Nelson to come up with a plan on the day. And so it proved that night. Each British warship now lit four lights on their mizzen mast, that's the slightly lower mast towards the stern of the ship, to avoid any friendly fire incidents. Extra ensigns were also hoisted for the same reason, although most would be shot away in the ensuing battle. With that done, HMS Goliath and HMS Zealous immediately sailed forward towards that first French ship in the defensive line. A French brig moved out to meet them, not to actually engage them, I mean that would have been a suicide mission, but to lure the British warships onto the shoals at the end of the bay. Captain Foley on HMS Goliath was far too experienced to fall for that trap. Born in the Welsh town of Narberth in Pembrokeshire in 1757, by the time he was 13 he had joined the Royal Navy and had nearly 30 years of experience behind him. Not only did he not fall for the French brig's ruse, but he spotted a fatal chink in the French defences. Their lead ship, Guerrier, had anchored close to the shoals, but not close enough. There was a gap that a skilled mariner, such as Foley, could just about pass through, which is exactly what he proceeded to do. 
Maneuvering his ship HMS Goliath through the gap, he now sailed down the landward side of the French fleet. HMS Zealous followed in his wake. Foley sailed towards the second French ship, the Conqueron, while Captain Hood on the Zealous bore down on the Guerrier. Dropping their anchors, both British ships now opened a devastating fire. Within just 12 minutes, the Guerrier had been disabled. HMS Orion now sailed through the gap, firing on the Guerrier and then sinking a French frigate before swinging round in between the Franklin and the Pupil Silverin and delivered broadsides on both French ships at the same time. In the darkness, still more of Nelson's fleet managed to make their way through that gap at the end of the French line. HMS Audacious fired on both the Guerrier and the Conqueron before joining the Orion to fire on the Pupil Silverin. Meanwhile, HMS Theseus, commanded by Ralph Miller, who'd been born in pre-revolution New York City, followed behind. The Theseus had been built in 1786 at Blackwall on the River Thames. Interestingly, 11 of Nelson's fleet had been built at dockyards along the River Thames. Seven at Deptford, two at Rotherhide, one at Woolwich, and the Theseus at Blackwall. Two more had been built on the Medway in Kent. The lone outlier was HMS Defence, which had been built at the Plymouth Dockyard. Now, who out there is a fan of Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander books? Or maybe the film starring Russell Crowe? It's a great film. Shame they haven't made another one. Yet. Well, in the novels, Jack Aubrey served on HMS Theseus earlier on in his career. Theseus too fired on the hapless Guerriere as she passed before anchoring and engaging the Spartiat. Now, you might at this point be wondering how the British were able to sail past the French without being hit by French broadsides. Well, the French had not expected the British to be able to get on their landward side. Consequently, none of their guns had been run out prior to the action. As the battle heated up, so the French did start to fire back, but their position had been fatally compromised. And it was about to get worse. Now Nelson's flagship, HMS Vanguard, led the attack from the seaward side. Captained by 30-year-old Edward Berry, the Vanguard now attacked the Spartiat, the French ship was being hit by both HMS Theseus on her port side and HMS Vanguard on her starboard. Captain Berry then sailed on and engaged the Aquilon. However, his attack resulted in heavy British casualties, with most of the Vanguard's forward batteries either killed or wounded. Nelson himself received a wound to his head and was taken below decks, blood streaming down his face for medical attention. And at this moment, no one knew if the injury was mortal or not. HMS Minotaur now bypassed Nelson's flagship and anchored just ahead of the Aquilon to draw her fire away from the vanguard. It's hard to imagine what this battle must have been like. It was a close-quarter naval battle fought at night, the darkness illuminated by the flash of cannons and the odd fire on ships. In some cases, the Royal Navy ships were dropping anchor a matter of yards from the French. Just imagine the impact of a 24-pound cannonball fired at point-blank range into a wooden ship. Smashing into the timbers, they would send huge splinters flying across the decks. Injuries were horrific. Up on the open decks, crews were exposed to chain and link shot that was aimed at bringing down the rigging and masts. And when that rigging and mast came down, they brought anyone up in them thundering down to the deck, crushing anybody beneath them, or throwing men into the dark sea. Swivel guns, almost like baby cannon, would fire grape shot or canister, which were bags of musket balls that swept the decks like giant shotguns. Marines, and each 74-gun Royal Navy ship of the line tended to have a complement of about 100 marines, would join in the fray, firing their muskets at opposing crews. Some marines would even climb into the rigging to fire down on their enemy. Remember, it was a shot from a marksman in the rigging 
that would mortally wound Nelson at the Battle of Trafalgar. HMS Bellerophon was the next into action, under the command of Irishman Captain Henry Darby. Nicknamed the Billy Ruffian by her crew, she sailed past Vanguard and Minotaur and took on the French flagship, the mighty 120-gun Lorient. In a vicious one-hour battle, all of Bellerophon's officers were killed or wounded and the badly mauled British battleship cut her lines and drifted away from the French fleet across the bay. Now it was the turn of HMS Defence and HMS Majestic to take on Lorient. The back four warships in Nelson's fleet were now racing to join the battle. In his haste, Captain Trowbridge on HMS Culloden grounded his ship on the shoals. Whilst Lieutenant Hardy on HMS Mutin stayed to help him refloat, the other two, HMS Swiftshore and HMS Alexander, also headed towards Lorient. Swiftshore took up position at the Frenchman's bow, whilst HMS Alexander went to her stern. Finally, HMS Leander, under Captain Thompson, a veteran of the Battle of Santa Cruz de Tenerife, where Nelson lost his right arm, dropped anchor between the Franklin and Lorient, firing on both ships. The French fleet was taking a battering. However, what the French had lost in leaving their defensive position compromised, they more than made up for in bravery. Despite the hapless Guerrier being disabled in the opening 12 minutes of the battle and then completely dismasted, her crew fought doggedly for three hours before finally surrendering at 9pm. It was at about that time that Lorient caught fire. It just so happened that prior to the battle, the crew had been painting the sides of the flagship and had had no time to stow away their paint supplies. What could have been a manageable fire suddenly got out of control. Any attempts by the crew of Lorient to douse the flames were met by Royal Navy ships racking her decks with canister shot. It was now that Admiral Bray himself was killed. It was only a matter of time before the flames reached her gunpowder magazines. Some of her crew started to jump overboard. The nearest British ships realised that they too were now in danger and started to pull back, dousing their woodwork and their sails and their rigging with seawater. At 10pm, Nelson reappeared on the deck of HMS Vanguard. The surgeon below had declared his head wound superficial. However, he would carry a very visible scar on his forehead for the rest of his life. His arrival was almost providential. At that moment, the French flagship exploded. The sound of the massive blast was heard many miles inland. An eerie silence now fell over the bay as the fighting stopped and crews from both navies stood and watched in awe. The silence was marred by debris falling from the sky, timber, rigging, metal from guns, body parts, like rain. Recent underwater archaeological surveys have marked a debris field of 500 metres or 500 yards from the explosion. Nearly 1,000 men were on board, including Commodore Casabianca and his 10-year-old son. Nelson ordered the Vanguard's longboat to be lowered to search for French survivors. Just 70 men were recovered. The battle then recommenced and lasted through the night. Just before dawn, two French ships of the line under the command of Admiral Villeneuve cut their cables and headed out to sea. As the sun rose back in the bay, the remaining French vessels struck their colours. At 3pm on the 2nd of August, a landing party from HMS Swiftshore captured the French shore battery. It was all over. Of the 17 ships anchored in the bay the previous evening, four had been sunk and nine captured. 5,000 Frenchmen had been killed and a further 3,100 made prisoners of war. In return, Nelson had lost just over 200 men dead and somewhere approaching 680 wounded. 
not a single Royal Navy ship had been lost. The news of the British victory didn't reach London for two months, but when it did, it resulted in national celebrations. Nelson became the country's preeminent admiral. He was created a baron and given a pension of £2,000 a year by Parliament. His victory at the Nile had left Bonaparte's army in Egypt without any naval support and significantly contributed to the ultimate failure of his enterprise. A year later, he had abandoned his army and headed back to France. His grandiose plan to undermine British control of India had come to naught. No wonder that Nelson also received gifts from both the City of London and the East India Company. Nelson's victory had changed the balance of power in the Mediterranean in Britain's favour. It was an advantage that she would keep for the next 17 years as she fought both first revolutionary and then Napoleonic France. Two of the captured French ships, Spartiat and Tonnant, would serve with the Royal Navy at the Battle of Trafalgar. So too would HMS Bellerophon. She would also transport Napoleon to Britain after his defeat at Waterloo. On the night of the 1st of August, 1798, two equally matched fleets met in battle. Each fleet had 13 mighty ships of the line. They also had equal number of guns. The French lost 11 of those ships, plus two frigates. The Royal Navy lost none. Many would argue it was one of the greatest naval victories in the history of the Royal Navy. Maybe for sheer audacity, as well as the one-sidedness of the result, it was Nelson's greatest victory. But of course, Nelson's not remembered for this battle, but for another. The Battle of the Nile almost seems to be a footnote on the way to the Battle of Trafalgar. And I don't know about you, but that seems a bit of a shame. And yet, there are legacies if you look hard enough. On the back of the victory, Egypt and anything Egyptian suddenly became fashionable in costumes and home decorations back in Regency Britain, and you can still see examples in stately homes. A few years later, the Khedive of Egypt presented an obelisk to Britain to commemorate the victory. You can see that too. Cleopatra's needle on the embankment in London. And there's one more legacy. A legacy that's been parodied by comedians including Spike Milligan and Eric Morecambe. In 1826, Felicia Dorothea Hemans wrote a poem about the battle. Not about Nelson or the Royal Navy. She wrote it about the 10-year-old son of Commodore Casabianca, who died when the French flagship exploded. Entitled Casabianca, you might know the opening lines. The boy stood on the burning deck, whence all but he had fled. The Battle of the Nile, 1st of August, 1798. Well, thanks for joining me today. And if you'd like to dive deeper into some of the lesser known battles, campaigns, heroes from Britain's military history, then why not join my new membership channel here on YouTube? You'll get extra exclusive videos going into greater detail and telling the lesser known stories. Click on the button which says join beneath this video to find out more. There's also a link in the description. And thank you to Ed, Michael and Harry, amongst others, for recently signing up. You can also sign up for my free newsletter. There's another link in the description for that too. Thanks for all your support, keep well, and I'll see you very soon. Well, thanks for joining me today, and if you'd like to dive deeper into some of the lesser-known battles, heroes, and stories from Britain's history, especially her military history, then why not join my supporters club? You'll get extra exclusive episodes going into greater detail and telling the lesser-known stories, and thank you to Carl for signing up in the last couple of days. Thanks for your support, keep well, and I'll see you very soon.